Welcome to our next episode of the Five Moments of Need Performance Matters series. This is Bob Mosier, one of the many co-hosts you'll meet throughout this series. So friends, are you trying to learn more about the Five Moments of Need? Maybe how to design for them, implement for them, measure them and even sell them as an approach to your enterprise. Well, in the Performance Matters series, we will help you better understand the theory and best practices behind this powerful methodology and offer proven ways to put the five moments of need into practice. Okay, welcome everyone to another Performance Matters podcast series. Bob Mosier here, as I was introduced in the introduction. So great to have you all here. We hope this podcast finds you safe and well. We are very excited about this particular series. We have been doing an awful lot of Experience Matters series. Due to what's going on in our world with COVID and so on, we know that L&D is challenged like never before. As my dad always said, there's good in everything. We've seen some remarkable opportunities and acceleration, two common words when we talk to L&D leaders around what's going on today. And I tell you, friends, five moments of need workflow learning is wonderfully, I hate to use that word in these times, out of control right now. There's a remarkable amount of stunning work. And we are so excited today to have a dear friend. A gentleman I've admired for years, known forever, has done brilliant work in and out of five moments as long as I've known him. But we are so blessed and excited today to have Chris King with us on this call. Chris, how are you? I'm good, Bob. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. Good. That's a, And that's a big answer nowadays. Yeah, it is. All that we have going on. But So, Chris, hey, let's get right into this, my friend. So, um, like we always do in these, rather than read some bio or such, kind of helps segue us into our discussion today, which is really about some remarkable work you were thrust into of late. Give us a background in the back channel on your journey to this moment and sort of how five moments of need workflow learning kind of came into that. Yeah. So I've been in the business now for 20 plus years. I'm old enough that I don't like to say exactly how many (laughs) years. So, but like many people in the training business, I was an accidental trainer. You know, I, Mm -hmm. I got started because my college roommate called me up one day. I was not working anywhere near training. And he said, you know, I find myself the head of a training department now and we're hiring and I miss hanging out with you and I'll pay you $10,000 more than whatever you're making right now. If you'll come and work. Wow. And so, you know, as a, as a 20 something, it's like, uh, yeah, when can yeah. I start? So, but you know, he said, I think you'll be good at this. And, and he was right. He, he was right. It was a good fit for me. And when I look back on it, I come from a family of educators. My mom was a, was a teacher. I have cousins that are teachers. And so I have made a good career out of this and I've done a, a little bit of everything. I've taught myself instructional design. I've been an e-learning developer. I've been an LMS administrator. I was doing virtual delivery when I worked at Geico back in the early 2000s, so early adopt virtual thing, and became a consultant proper in 2009. And that's when I first heard about the five moments of need. It was kind of back before you were even calling it that. And uh, a colleague and good friend of mine went to a conference and saw you and Khan speak about it. And she came back and she said, you should really look into this because it's interesting. And she was absolutely right. It kind of uh, rocked my world as it does with with many people when they first discover the five moments of need. I think that it has become a kind of a guiding light for me. You know, I, I knew I was onto something when I took an instructional designer that was working for me to a RWA that I was conducting to start a course. Mm. And she was cold on this. She had never heard of the five moments of need or or a rapid workflow analysis or anything like that. And I did the whole deal. I did processes and steps. I built a workflow map. We did a critical impact analysis. And when we walked out of that workshop, my instructional designer said, 
I will never design a course oh. another way again. That was so transformative for me. And and that's when I knew, you know, we're really on to something here with this workflow learning. And so since then, I've been trying to find places to do it whenever I can. One of my challenges is that I'm not inside of a company. I don't have a team to work with to kind of build it out from the inside out. I'm an, a consultant that comes in. And so I'm constantly trying to convince people, trying to talk people into this, trying to explain to them the benefits. And I get good progress in some places. And then mm. like uh, just last year, I had been working with a training manager at a client for almost a year and, and, and he was ready to go. He was, we were talking about proofs of concept for performance support systems. And then he got another job and left the company. And yeah. so I had to start <laughs> over again at that client with the sales job on this. So that's one of the challenges that the consultants have working on the outside. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so it's, it has not been as steady a state as I would like it to be, but every chance I get to talk to people about it, I see the light bulb come on. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, it's remarkable, Chris. We are we are kindred spirits on this. You know, we're a consulting company. And, you know, in my role, I'm selling all the time. And I, I don't mean financially, frankly. And it just, my gosh, between kindred spirits, it just blows me away how we have to keep selling. Yeah. You know, it's it's and, and a lot of times it's to our own colleagues. I find that the end user gets it. The learner wishes once they know what it is and sees it was like, where's this been all my life? In, in many cases, but mm -hmm. darn it, our industry has been like turning an ocean liner around at this whole thing. But my friend, you, you've been remarkable. You've been a dear friend. I've watched your work for a long time. Like you said, you are so lockstep with it, like few we see and do remarkable work. COVID, oh. along comes this darn thing. And talk about upsetting the apple cart on every level, humanistically and personally, and then of course, professionally. Walk us into what we're gonna talk about today. Give us a bit about the comeuppance on this whole thing and how is this different from other training projects you've done in the past? Oh, man. So this particular one that I was working on. So let me just take a step back. The pandemic is a chance to change the way we do business. It uh, is. I just want to say that out it loud is. because it's our chance to really kind of experiment with new things. And, and I've been encouraging everybody that I talk to, uh, every webinar that I give, every chance to speak with groups, I'm challenging them to change the way you're doing business. Good for you. Good so, for you. So yeah, this one was different. This particular project, the story begins back in April. So right as the, at the start of the lockdown, a uh, little background, we're a certified implementation partner with Panviva, and they brought us this opportunity to work with this company called Maximus. So Maximus is a global outsourcing company that focuses on government-sponsored programs, mm -hmm. and they were working with a state department of health to stand up a contact tracing call center. Wow. So really topical, very important work. The call center would be responsible for notifying citizens when they tested positive for COVID-19 uh, and then collecting information about where they were and who they interacted with during their infectious period. And then they would also conduct outreach to anyone who was designated as a close contact to wow. notify them of potential exposure, ask them to quarantine themselves and answer questions about where they could get tested or how they could get connected with state resources for help. Mm. So really kind of a meaty, great uh, outcome, great mission to work on. On. It was a good project. So the kind of thing that we were up against was, you know, these kinds of calls are long and heavy on both education and data collection, mm. right? The, the script that we received from the State Department of Health was 20 pages long, and, and we're not talking oh about goodness. a lot of white space in there either. Yeah, it was it, the SOP itself was 40 pages long and buried in there was a workflow. 
So we're talking about 20, 25 minutes on per call on just the short ones with a lot of specialized terminology that needed to be translated from medical to plain language. And, you know, Maximus's hiring program focused on furloughed medical personnel for that reason alone. You know, they were they were hiring sure. furloughed doctors and nurses and people like that to help with the communication challenges. So we got a big, complex script. We have a long workflow. But it was really the scale that was a little daunting because uh, Maximus was hiring 500 agents to staff this call Ooh. center. So this is 500 people that would need to, from a cold start, be able to deliver a standard 20-page script and collect important and, and I don't think it's an exaggeration to say life-saving data. Clearly. Yeah. You know? Wow. So it's complex workflow, long stretches of scripting, huge number of call center agents. But Bob, let me tell you how it got really air quote interesting. <laughs> the CRM tool that the health department was using was still being built. So wow. they had a workflow and they had questions and answers, but everything was in state of flux. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the menus were changing all the time, the icons they were using. So we're shooting at a moving target for our training, you know, and, and of course, if we had enough time, the CRM would settle down and we'd have a chance to build it right. So that no big deal. But I don't think I mentioned that we were brought in eight days before go live. <laughs> Jeez. So for the Maximus project team, this whole thing was like planning a wedding with 500 guests in just three weeks. Yeah. Wow. Perfect analogy. Yeah. So you can imagine how everyone was feeling when you kick off a project like that with those kinds of time constraints. So, I mean, that the list of unknowns was just amazingly long and this thing had to launch on time. So what we wound up doing is we were able to create that workable performance support tool in Panviva over a weekend. We didn't even have a chance actually to do a rapid workflow analysis with the team. I mean, we had to take the script and the SOP. We had access to the test environment for the CRM, and we had several meetings with the State Department SMEs. And that's really what we had to work with. So after we got that weekend done, we spent the rest of the week adding processes for software tools. We added resources for how to log into the eight different systems the agents needed to access. And and we spent the time updating information as things changed. And then that call center went live uh, on time at the beginning of May. Wow. So an amazing work by the Maximus team to just hire 500 people and get them ready to go. And where's the time for training and all of that? Right, right. Well, I'm curious, let me ask a question. So I, I was just on a talk the other day, and the common question is when they see an EPSS, when they see the results of a leap, when they see, for those who don't know, sorry, learning, learning experience, performance plan and such. When they see these things and then they, of course, think back to Addy and ID and stuff, they're, they're like, oh, my gosh, how long does this take? It's got to be, you know, it looks exhaustive and, and, the, and the EPSS is impressive. Of course, they typically see one that's been iterated and vetted a number of times, Oh yeah. you know, when you show an example. But like any methodology that works, it's a principle based thing. It's not a rule based thing. And that, that's what makes a good methodology flexible. Mm-hmm. It makes it applicable to different kinds of content, different kinds of needs, and and in in our case, performances and behaviors. What parts of Enable methodology worked in this really, really unique case for you? Yeah. Yeah. So so literally, there was no time to do the normal rapid workflow analysis. I, I mentioned that. And I have to admit, we spent a lot of time fixing things that we would have worked out in that workflow analysis if we'd have the time Mm. to do it. I mean, that that eight-day deadline really kind of time-boxed us out of any kind of chance to do workflow analysis. So at least we had a workflow 
So we were able to yep. pull the workflow out of the SOP. And Bob, I know you've talked in the past about how you as an instructional designer didn't really pay attention to workflow because it wasn't what you were considered learning and, and what you were designing. But we were forced from the beginning to focus on that workflow because that yep. was central to what we were doing. So that workflow focus of the enable methodology really kind of helped us out there. I think we did chunking right. So we mm. never had the chance to create a proper leap plan. But I did use the template, the leap template, to track the documents we were creating to make sure that we didn't leave anything out. So it helped us stay organized. We chunked our processes and, and tasks down right. And at the start, kind of the one of the knock-on effects of not having a chance to do the rapid workflow analysis is that we created a whole bunch of supporting knowledge and reference resources, but to, even today, many of them remain underutilized in the system because we never properly connected them back to the tasks yeah. that they supported. Mm. You know, I think another thing that was super important for us was writing style. Mm. Beth and Carol in the in the Five Moments of Need designer course spend a lot of time talking about how to write for performance. And yes. I have to emphasize this. It makes all of the difference, especially in this kind of call center live performance environment. I mean, we spent most of the month of August rewriting instructions and reducing the length of the documents to make them more focused, short and to the point and, and easy to scan. Wow. I remember when I saw one of Sue Reber, one, another one of our wonderful developers who, you know, Chris, and, and, and she's, mm -hmm. she at one time early in my, my learning of this, she pulled us back and said, well, we really need to, because uh, a lot of times you'll, you'll have all hands on deck with these things and you'll actually have end users writing content. You get, you get SMEs writing content, not just IDs writing content. And she's like, well, you know, we really should class on writing steps. Yep. And I was like, Sue, come on, writing, <laughs> writing, come on, writing steps. Really? These folks are SMEs. They know the step. They, oh, Chris. No. No, they don't. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, an SME will give you 68,000 steps, each a paragraph and a half long, with supporting knowledge in there somewhere and, and tangents. It sounds like it should be 101 for us as IDs and L&D professionals, but I love the way you said it. That change to performance-based mm -hmm. writing, mm -hmm. it's really different, isn't it? Yep. It is. It's it's a different style of writing. It it begins with an action verb. It's describing an action and it, it's easy to scan. It really kind of boils things down to what are you going to do? Yes. That just fits right in with the whole five moments of need and, and how you have to focus on the do and the <laughs> things that you need to know or understand is secondary. So it's that performance supports pyramid back to that and yep. having those different layers and you're focused at the top of the pyramid on the do. Well, you know, it's been funny, Chris. I've had so many conversations with IDs who we think, and I, and I sympathize, we're wired to do that. That's, mm -hmm. That is what we do. Someone comes to us and they want people to be better leaders. So, you know, so we write things that help them to be better leaders. Like, okay, well, so let's engage in a conversation. And, and I say, so, so where should we start? And the first, these are the words they say, well, I really want them to understand the fact that, and I go, well, wait, mm -hmm. <laughs> listen to what you just said. That is not doing. Now, yeah. You have to comprehend to do, but it really is amazing how it is a rewiring in yep. a lot of cases. It is. Wow. It wow. Is, I agree. So, hey, friend, huge adoption here, right? I mean, this this wasn't a shift just for you guys. It wasn't a shift for just the organization that was putting this remarkable pressure on you. Because I'm sure in their mind, they still, even though the window was so short and so on, I'm sure they kind of had a, well, you're going to train them mentality, mm -hmm. right? So how did your team help with adoption of this and getting this in, in such a short time to some type of minimal viable product? 
Yeah. So eight days to train 500 agents on a 20 page script that supported a CRM that was still in the beta stage right in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, <laughs> I'm laughing. I'm sorry. Right. This is not something that Addy could even envision, much less right. support. Right. So right. typical systems training. No way. We don't have time for that. Yeah. So there was no way training in any conventional way could get this team on their feet in the time that we had. So really what we did was we said, we're going to put all of our effort into building this EPSS and then the training for your agents needs to focus on having them trust the EPSS, trust the yeah. performance support tool that they're going to have. And I think that's one of the things that the Maximus supervisor team did right is they day in and day out, they told their teams, you have to follow what it says in the tool. You have to follow the script. You have to follow the questions that are being set up for you because the CRM is changing all the time. The questions are changing. The script is changing. Yeah. Everything is changing. You want to talk about a super moment of change. I mean, this was yeah. we were living that moment of change for five weeks uh. every day. And so it may be different from one call to the next. Mm. You know, we were publishing stuff in the middle of the day to the tool. Yeah. And so there was no time for conventional training on this. This was I'm going to train you how to use the EPSS. And that's what we're going to do. Wow. Talk about learning in the workflow. Oh, yeah. It was. I mean, holy that's cow. all we had time for is learning in the workflow. Wow. Uh, without without you know going into too much, give me a grade for these folks. How do they do, Chris, in your opinion? I hate to say it this direct, but do you feel like it worked? So I did. I, I you know, I think the Maximus team did a bunch of things right to really kind of set us up for success on this. You know, they incorporated the EPSS into new hire training from the yeah. very start. So they, they that taught the agents to trust the tool and freed up all kinds of classroom time to focus on the mechanics of a call instead of the script or the workflow, right? Because remember, these are most of these people that they hired do not have any kind of call center experience. Right. Right? right. So so they were able to free up a bunch of classroom time to focus on things like how do you do active listening when you're on a call? How do you do customer service when you're on a call instead of having to say, here's the script you have to follow. Let's do this. And here's what you have to say. So uh, another thing that they did, they weren't afraid to say this isn't working. Let's try something else. And so uh, they were very iterative in the way they approached this. The team, I mean, we had for the first two weeks or three weeks, maybe there was an open conference line from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. where anybody could jump on that open conference line and just ask a question. And that's where a lot of the ideas about what was working in the EPSS and what wasn't working in the EPSS came out. Along those lines, as soon as they had had identified some high-performing agents, they brought those people into the conversations about how mm. to improve the system. So we started to have separate meetings with that team and some supervisors to talk about, well, what can we change in the script, in the, the flow, in the workflows that were in the EPSS? How can we change those so that they would flow better, so they're smoother, so it's easier? And they constantly emphasize the tool. Follow the tool. Follow the wow. tool. So all your answers are in the Panviva tool. Just some remarkable things here, right? And if I may, it, it kind of shoots down some sacred things in myths. I would call them myths that we have blown out of proportion in L&D that we don't really have anything to look. We don't really have any research to look back on and go, well, yeah, that's really valid. You know, things like the class is the end all to everything and, and all learning has to happen there. Mm -hmm. Right. The learners can't learn iteratively. Iteratively. They have to walk out having heard and seen it all to then go in to do anything, including start from the beginning. The classroom has to carry the burden of everything. And therefore, it's never, I think, 
what a classroom should be, but you yet described a very different classroom, which optimized why I think you bring people together, which is practice, safety, trial and error, a brilliant facilitator there to, to help get you through those things. Yeah. Just some really remarkable twists on this thing. And then I want to run a little bit, if I may, with iterative design, because mm-hmm. our new industry loves to talk about that, agile and stuff. And I don't know, again, you talked a lot about things evolving, you know, polishing and adjusting as you kind of had to go. Mm-hmm. Give us some sense of what that was like and and how did your thinking about the workflow itself or the workflows you had evolve in that process. Yeah. So you and Khan have talked a lot about what I call the second half of the game, so to speak, right? <laughs> it's it's the, the importance of content management. It's after you've built the EPSS, because as soon as that EPSS becomes uh, or says a false statement, it yep. starts to lose people. And so you have to build up and emphasize the currency and the trustworthiness of, the, of that content that you're working on. And so I can tell you on day nine of this project, we were already looking at how to improve the trustworthiness. How do we improve the content? So the, the script and the SOP were being updated as we were working on this. So, so, you know, we got three or four different versions of the script within the first six weeks of the project. So you, you want to talk iterative. We were having yeah. to change the script out because that's what the State Department of Health told us that we had to say. And so the CRM was also changing. So maintenance became a very critical function for us as a EPSS team. And while the Maxima supervisors were doing a great job of emphasizing, follow the script, ask all the questions, don't skip anything. That was in large part because the script and the questions were changing all the time. And so they identified the people that had passion for revising and improving the script. And we were able to take that passion and really turn it into a series of improvements on the way the script flowed, on the way the documents were connected to each other, on the way the workflow ran from one end to the other. I think that O&M focus, that operations and maintenance focus on the backside, the second half of the game is so critical. It is really kind of where, especially in this kind of environment where the pace was brutal and the work was constant, there was never a moment where they let off the gas. On this, and and as far as I know, they're still going. I mean, we started to phase ourselves out of this because Maximus had stood up an internal team that was ready to start supporting, and so they've got four or five authors that meet on a weekly basis with the call center supervisors and some of those high-performing agents to talk about what else needs to be changed. So it is a built-in continuous improvement cycle that they're working on. And wow. I'm really proud of that team because they did a great job of of leaning into it and understanding what needed to be done and really kind of picking up the ball and running with it. Wow. Well, it's amazing what less life-saving work will do. Yeah. It's, yeah. Quite, it's quite motivating, right? Inspiring yeah. to, and, and, I, and I loved how you started this call out earlier, Chris, this idea that, and I'm on board with you too. I do it every time I talk is that I've talked to hundreds, if not thousands, of L&D professionals across the world because of this scenario, and opportunity and acceleration mm-hmm. are the mm-hmm. two words I've heard over and over again. If we miss this opportunity, it may be one of the greatest our industry has ever been given, yep. and shame and shame on us for not stepping up to the plate and changing something we should have changed long ago, but truly can now. And acceleration. I mean, my gosh, talk about your world. Oh, yeah. But one of the big pushbacks is I don't want to buy an EPSS. I can't buy one, can't get the funding. Well, guess what? Desperate times call for desperate measures. And we've seen a receptivity globally to any technology yep. that will help accelerate 
and support performance now at such a desperate time for many companies. So friend, we've done a bunch of these. I think that maybe the closest that comes to your world that you lived maybe might, might be Mark Wagner at the Hartford when he had to do some remarkable work in their call centers around yep. supporting insurance and funding and such. But Chris, I don't know. I don't think anything touches this. When you step back from it, now that you have exited a bit, lots of lessons learned here mm-hmm. that I'm sure apply beyond the uniqueness of this scenario. So again, I, I love ending these with many who listen haven't started. Many who listen have just started. There's so much ahead of them to do this well. What advice would you give either your younger self mm-hmm. <laughs> or or someone out there that just listened to this and went, my gosh, how do I get to be him? How do, how do I get my learning department to do this? What advice would you give folks that you've learned in this? I would say that taking the time to educate the stakeholders on the five moments of need is critical on this. I mean, to me, the Performance Support Pyramid continues to be probably one of the best tools to help people understand the hierarchy of information and what you're trying to accomplish. So it, it, to me, it's really kind of the gateway drug for the rest of this framework. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and, and as I mentioned, the other thing that catches instructional designers' attention is the LEAP plan. When they see that LEAP plan template that, yep. that comes out of the Five Moments Designer Certificate works on and helps you understand how to complete, when they see one of those and they see the learning frameworks and they see the things that are in place, the targeted learning and the instructional treatments, they get it. The light bulb comes on for them. So take some time to educate your team on this methodology. And you and and Khan have done a fantastic job of being the voice and waving the flag for this. So there's plenty of resources out there. There's plenty of articles. This podcast is a great great tool for just saying, hey, maybe you should listen to, to this episode. This seems like something that works for us. So in this particular situation, we didn't have time to do that kind of spinning people up on the five moments of need. And so we had to jump straight into the EPSS and never really had a chance to look back. And I definitely had didn't have any visibility into the training team and, and what they were building because I was so heads down yeah. in the EPSS, right? So one thing that did really help out, though, is that there was a senior person on the Maximus team who had been through an RWA with us on a different project just the month before. Oh. So, so Maximus is a matrix organization and they were pulling in talented people from all over to help stand up this call center. And so with that RWA experience fresh in her mind, when we started the cleanup process, she knew what to ask for. And so that kind of goes to, I think, probably the biggest message for my younger self, and that would be find a champion. So mm. even if you consider yourself your organization's champion for the five moments of need, yep. you need other voices. So it made me think there was a there's a terrific video by Derek Sievers called First Follower, the leadership lessons from Dancing Guy. Have you seen this, Bob? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's the best leadership training video you'll ever watch. And and Derek's point is that a follower transforms a lone nut into a movement. And wow. if you get a chance, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't seen this, search leadership lessons from Dancing Guy on YouTube and watch this video because the point is that you need to find others in your organization to be a champion also and add your voice to yours. And Bob, I would have to say that you are the first follower to Khan's lone nut here in, <laughs> in the whole movement. And so, so that's my message to people that are just starting out is educate the people around you, educate the stakeholders, help them understand the power of this framework 
and add their voices to yours so that it makes it safer for other people to get involved and get on the bandwagon on this. Wow. My friend, brilliant as always. I can't think of a better ambassador. You have been on this ride with us a long time, and you've stuck with it. You've remained true to the discipline, true to the principles, um, and I've watched and admired your work as it's gotten better and better. And then, my gosh, they are so fortunate, in my opinion, to have found you because I can't imagine another consultant or another designer more equipped and ready to have taken on what was almost an impossible challenge. And I know for those lives that that touched, Chris, they can't thank you for that enough. And we can't thank you enough for your friendship, your partnership in this journey, your great work and the voice that you have become. It's just been wonderful. And and we can't thank you enough for being with us today. Well, I'm very honored, Bob, and thank you, and 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 I appreciate all of the the good words, and and I'm just happy to to be a contributor here. <laughs> well, you're a wonderful one, friend. Thank you. Be well, friends. We'll be back for another episode soon. Chris, thanks so much. All right, bye. Well, that's it for this episode of the Five Moments of Need Performance Matters series. We look forward to future conversations around how to best put the five moments of need into practice. We welcome your feedback and can be reached on Twitter using my Twitter handle at B-M-O-S-H, as well as our Five Moments of Need website, which is www.the5momentsofneed.com. We hope you're finding these helpful and will subscribe to future episodes. Have a great day, friends.